Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, uh, our chance to dive into the big issues driving policy and politics in America today. And among those issues, there's really none bigger than immigration. It's the one issue that carried Donald Trump to the White House in 2016. And isn't it obvious from his nonstop war on both legal and illegal immigration? It's the one issue he believes will carry him to another four years in 2020. So it's important for all of us to understand what is the truth about the immigration problem? Is there a crisis at the southern border? Are criminals, rapists, and terrorists pouring into the United States? Are immigrants taking jobs from American workers and draining American tax dollars for public services? Well, it's important to know the facts. Joining us today with the facts about immigration, Tom Javits, who is Vice President for Immigration Policy at the Great Center for American Progress. We join Tom in his office at the center. Tom, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks again. So we've seen uh, even evidence this week of uh, Donald Trump continuing to wage his war on uh, immigration on a couple of fronts, illegal immigration and legal immigration. We saw the ICE raids in Mississippi just a few days ago, uh, and then some new rules regarding green cards for legal immigrants. I'd like to talk to you about both areas and maybe what some of the solutions are, but let's just start out on the illegal immigration front, if you will. Is there a crisis at the southern border? I mean, no question we are experiencing a greater challenge at the southern border than we've experienced in a few years. Um, if you take a step back on why we're experiencing that, there are a lot of reasons. One is that the fundamentals haven't changed. There is a lot of uh, great human insecurity in three countries in particular in Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, where people are facing a huge amount of, of violence, a huge amount of personal insecurity, a degradation of the rule of law in those countries. Uh, and in some of the, some parts of some of those countries, uh, huge food insecurity. I mean, famine actually beginning to spread uh, due to you know climate change. And so there, there's a, there's a lot of um, there, there's a great need out there, and people are responding to that need by fleeing and coming to the southwest border. Now, part of the cause of the chaos and disorder is both how the administration has responded to those conditions in those countries, and also how the administration has responded to the pressure at the border. But in terms of sheer numbers, the people coming across the border, uh, are we as, according to Donald Trump, there have never been seen this many people going to the border. So, I'm from California. I think I remember a lot more people. Yeah, certainly not. I mean, we, we've had larger numbers of people 
come into the U.S. border in the past. Um, you know, we've had you know 1.6 million people a year coming uh, several decades ago, um, but the numbers are up from where they were a couple of years ago, certainly. And the makeup of the people who are coming are different. We're seeing well, far fewer uh, single adult men of working age uh, coming to the United States, and we're seeing a larger number of families with minor children who are coming and presenting themselves. And that does present some unique challenges uh, in how we interpret what's going on and how we can respond to it responsibly. Well, I'm glad you went there because I wanted to ask you about that. It is the, the nature of the people who are coming to the border that has changed dramatically from the days when they were single men basically coming to work in the in the fields, right? And so is, is our system designed to handle this new population? You know, it's really complicated because... You know, the, the, the situation at the border is presenting itself as an asylum problem, right? Because many of these people are expressing a fear of persecution and they're, you know, in overwhelming numbers being found to actually possess a credible fear of persecution. And the question becomes, do we have the resources to quickly and effectively and fairly adjudicate those claims? But there, you know, the strains that we'd be experiencing at the border to adjudicate those claims would be would be far, far less if we were taking, a, you know, a completely different approach to how we deal with immigration and humanitarian crises in our hemisphere than we are today. So, for instance, one thing the administration has done is cut off all foreign aid to these uh, countries in Central America. It has uh, increased deportations. It has threatened to end temporary protected status, the status that hundreds of thousands of Hondurans and Salvadorans have that would further destabilize things in the region. It's uh, basically undermined efforts to combat corruption uh, in these countries, especially Guatemala. The things it is doing is increasing insecurity and destabilization in the region, which is increasing the flow of folks coming here. So one thing we could do is just stop being so destructive to conditions in the region and actually get back in the game to help uh, improve conditions. Another thing we could do, we could think through, would be rather than shutting down completely our refugee admissions program, which is an orderly way of providing uh, a possibility for safety for people who are fleeing persecution, we could actually dedicate resources. An administration trying to solve this problem would have two years ago stood up a dedicated refugee admissions program for Central America, and we'd be partnering with the United Nations in order to find people who can be referred from the region uh, for this program so we could adjudicate their claims, we could do all the background checks, we could bring them in in an orderly fashion, thereby not necessarily eliminating, but decreasing the strain along the border. There are things we could do that would be real solutions here. And the violence that they talk about in these countries is real. Their violence is extremely real. They're some of the most dangerous places in the entire world. Um, and, you know, again, one of the other things that's so important is the violence, uh, again, in particular for children, that was driving so many young people to flee from El Salvador several years ago, that those homicide numbers began to come down, um, at least in part because of investments, smart strategic investments that we were helping to make in, in, in decreasing violence against some people in El Salvador. And those are exactly the funds that this administration has now cut off and zeroed out. Right. So we can make positive, positive moves in order to reduce the need for people to come to the United States uh, in, in a regular fashion and request protection. We can improve their lot in this world um, and thereby also benefit our own ability to have you know, a safe and orderly system. But we're just not doing that because I really think I think Adam Serwell was brilliant when he made his piece a year plus ago. Uh, the cruelty is the point. I think the next level of that is that the chaos is the point as well, because the administration, for political and policy reasons, feeds off of the chaos that they create. I saw the new head of the border, or maybe his new head of ICE the other day, say that um, 
They had no choice but to split up these families. I mean, they had to do so. That's what the law says. Uh, and um, is that right? No, I mean, that's that. That's one of the biggest lies. I mean, I, I hesitate to say that because there have been so many lies. But it's absolutely untrue that the law required the administration to separate these families. Nothing changed in the law uh, from when Donald Trump became president uh, to when past administrations were uh, in office. And no previous administration ever adopted a policy that required the separation of families. Even something like the zero tolerance prosecution policy, right? They, they, they knowingly adopted a policy of referring family members for prosecution, which they then said resulted in the separation of families. You know, that policy drove much of the family separation and was very much the heart of it. But even the criminal laws in, in place don't require family separation because those laws have been in place for nearly 100 years and no previous administration had used those criminal laws as a weapon in order to force the separation of families. But this administration separated families even without prosecuting parents. You had a parent with a minor child coming to the port of entry to request asylum, and even though they couldn't even be lawfully prosecuted for illegal entry, they were still being separated from one another, placed into different facilities, and basically lost in the system. So back to these families that are coming. I mean, with a system that was designed to deal with people crossing illegally the border, looking for jobs, uh, wherever, switching to that to families that are coming, men and mothers and fathers and their little kids, are, are we equipped to handle that? I mean, do we have facilities to take care of these families and while they're seeking asylum? You know, it's, it, it is a challenge. I mean, if the goal is to actually place all these individuals into a custodial setting and hold them in facilities, we certainly don't have that. But it's also not necessary for us to do that. Under the last administration, when we were when we saw numbers of families coming, but nothing like what we've seen under this administration, um, you know, they had a program in place called the Family Case Management Program. It was a small program. Um, it was resource intensive, but also was extremely cheap, right? It, it was resource intensive because it actually leveraged the ability of people to come together and provide at the right time and in the right way and in the right amount, the kinds of ser services and supports and legal access and know your rights information and social supports that were required to ensure positive outcomes. So you had families going through this family case management program where they were not held in one of these large scale detention camps. Um, but they were faithfully reporting for all of their removal proceedings. They were actually learning pretty quickly early on whether they might have a chance of protection down the road. And in some cases, people were actually, you know, voluntarily choosing to no longer go through the immigration court process and to be safely and effectively repatriated back to their home country because they realized they wouldn't actually qualify for relief. So that was a program that did exist before this administration took office, and they've ended that program because, again, they're not trying to find solutions. What are, we've seen members of Congress go down, and usually depending on their political party, we get a different report about the condition in these facilities where the kids are being held. What's really going on there? What, it, you know, what, I mean, what think, is it like inside of these facilities? I think it's extremely grim. I mean, when I was working for Congress back in 2014, frankly, um, and we went to some of the facilities when, when the unaccompanied children were coming in largest numbers before, before we mm -hmm. saw quite as many families coming, um, yeah, these are not facilities that are at all equipped to handle children, certainly not for any period of time. 
Um, and they're the same facilities we're seeing now, but with larger numbers and with an administration that, that again, is not trying to find a way out of it, right? So in 2014, when very large numbers of people were coming, I didn't agree with everything the Obama administration did to respond to that situation. They leaned in very heavily to the idea of family, family detention. Uh, they did a number of things that raised a lot of concern for me in 2014 when I was working uh, in Congress. But everything they were doing was done with an eye toward trying to address the situation, trying to you know, get kids out of facilities uh, where they're being held along the border for, for periods of time that were so long that it was unlawful. Um, again, I didn't agree with all their solutions, but they were trying to get them out and they were trying to get them someplace else. Um, this administration is not doing that, right? Like for them, the, the visuals actually are an opportunity because they're an opportunity to drive ever more draconian policies and to increase the rhetoric and increase the fear uh, to try and mobilize their base. And so they're, they're, they're using it as an opportunity rather than as something they want to try and try and address. How long are these kids, uh, how, how long can these kids be held in these detention centers? So under our laws, kids have to be released from these facilities within 72 hours. Um, and in fact, I mean, you know, some of the reports that were coming out a few months ago or so were kids who were being held for three weeks or up to a month. Um, in you know, let's be clear about this: these are these are small cells that are designed to hold maybe like 20 people that are holding 80 people who can't, you know, sit down. They can't. Uh, they're forced to stand up. There's one toilet that's open air. Um, it's very very cold. Conditions are extremely unsanitary. Um, I mean, we, you know, we, have, we have had children in government custody who have been dying as a result of preventable diseases um, because we simply don't have the, the, the political will, frankly, um, to prevent it. Um, and I think it's not, in this case, it's not a question of just, of just neglect. Uh, it's willful neglect. I mean, they, they understand what's happening here. The warning signs were all there, and we've continued to pursue these policies. But of course, this entire problem would disappear if we would only build the wall. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, ha I testified before the House Budget Committee maybe about a month and a half or so ago, and, um, you know, one of the members said to me, well, you know, of course we agree on border security. I'm so glad to hear you agree on border security, and that's where we need the wall. And what I said was, you know, look, I want to be clear. If your vision of border security begins at the border, you've lost. Like, you've, you've totally misunderstood what's happening. Um, border security you know, the integrity of our borders is something that, I, you know, I, I can get behind. I understand why it's important to have borders in a country. Um, but if the only way in which you plan on maintaining the integrity of those borders is by physically stopping people from being able to come across the border, that makes no sense at all. You need to begin that process by recognizing that you have a global footprint and there are things happening in 99% of the world that, you know, are going to affect where people want to leave those countries and where they may want to go. You have to understand that if there are functional legal opportunities for people to come through the system or it's a dream or envision that one day if they do something right they might find a way to come through the system then that provides you know a huge opportunity to relieve the strain on a system that otherwise would rely on them just coming straight to our border and seeing if they can get through right so border security has to be understood much more holistically as being the the, the last point on on the uh the you know long continuum uh i want to ask you about some of the myths, if you will, that um, coming from California, I've always heard about immigrants. Um, maybe the the most common is that they're coming here and they're taking jobs from Americans and driving wages down. 
Yeah, so the, the National Academies of Sciences did a really exhaustive study two years ago where they had a huge panel of experts. They looked at all the literature, basically, and essentially what they found is that, by and large, immigrants are complementing American workers in the workforce, that when immigrants come in, they create opportunities, largely because Americans actually have a skill that many immigrants don't have, which is you know native fluency in English. And so they have the ability to go from being a construction worker to being a foreman, for instance. Um, and so the opportunity to have their, you yeah. know, you know, uh, you know, to complement their skills then allows for that. If you have more folks who are going to be working in a construction site, you may have more opportunities for engineers and architects to be helping to expand projects. And so overall, there's large complement to the workforce. And I'm sorry. In terms of in terms of wages, I would say the wage effect is extremely small, if not negligible. Um, but there is a wage impact. There's a wa big wage bonus when you go uh, from an unauthorized status to a lawful status. And so absolutely it is the case that, you know, while there is not a, a, a measurable really effect on wages broadly of immigration, you know, the individuals who are working do see a wage benefit when they are able to work uh, with authorization. And you can imagine that that helps to sort of lift all tides as well. Uh, isn't it also true that uh, they're, the jobs that they're taking are for a large part are jobs that Americans don't want? I mean, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of an oversimplification in the sense that, um, you know, we did a study a few years ago with some economists to look at the 7 million unauthorized workers from the workforce. And they're in every single state, in every single industry. I mean, you have undocumented immigrants working in education, working in medicine, working in uh, as home health aides. I mean, they're doing a lot of different jobs throughout our sector. So it's a bit of an oversimplification, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that's, you know, I think that's an important point to make because while in some ways it would be sort of, I don't know, comforting or simplistic to be able to say they're taking jobs we would never take and therefore obviously they're not competing, they're not only just doing that. They are certainly taking jobs that Americans historically in large enough numbers will not take. Um, really hard, backbreaking jobs uh, that help to create the conditions that we all benefit from. But they're also taking jobs that we all depend upon because they're just like us, right? And so they are working. They're undocumented immigrants that I know who are lawyers today. They're undocumented immigrants who are serving as home health aides and taking care of elderly people um, as they leave the workforce. I mean, a lot of really essential work throughout the entire economy and our society that are being provided. Uh, and Donald Trump has added another uh, argument here, which is that most of these uh, illegal immigrants are uh, committing crimes, serious crimes and this is the criminals and the rapists and the terrorists that, uh, that we ought to round up and deport. Yeah, I mean, so that has definitely been very exhaustively studied. Um, and it's absolutely the case that immigrants, uh, by and large, are, are less likely to be committing crimes than uh, native-born Americans. And undocumented immigrants are even more less likely to be committing crimes. The, the one statistic uh, that they point to... Uh, which they uh, try to drive energy around is the percentage of the federal prison population today uh, who is foreign born. Um, but actually, if you look at the fact that for the last 10 to 12 years, the number one prosecution priority uh, for federal prosecutors has been illegal entry and illegal entry after removal, which are crimes that only you know, a foreign born person could even be prosecuted with, it just goes to, stands to reason basically that most of the folks who would be in our federal prison system, or a lot of the folks in our federal prison system um, are foreign born, right? So you know, essentially they're sort of cooking the books by over prosecuting uh, foreign born people for these specific immigration related crimes. And then saying the fact that you've got a good number of foreign born folks in our prison system is proof that somehow they're more criminally inclined than anybody else. So does it make sense then to decriminalize crossing the border? 
you know, it's, 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 it is like the hot topic of the day. Um, so from my perspective, I think it is important to recognize that these crimes, 1325, 1326, have been definitely over-prosecuted in the last 10 to 12 years. I mean, it makes no sense at all for them to be the top uh, most frequently prosecuted federal offenses in the country. Uh, the ways in which these prosecutions have taken place, you see video of 40, 50, 60 people all wearing orange jumpsuits, all handcuffed and shackled, standing in a single federal courtroom with one lawyer who's met each of them for about two minutes before the proceedings, when they basically all are asked to plead guilty all at once. I mean, it's a total travesty of, of due process and justice. That's a major, major problem. And so I think absolutely when you see that prosecutions for illegal entry are skyrocketing, while prosecutions for far more serious federal crimes along the border are plummeting, we've got a system that's you know turned sort of you know reasonable public safety and, and prosecutions on their head. Having said that, I think I would take a step back and say, you know, what are we trying to do here? I mean, if we built a system where people could have an opportunity to come through or through the system, right? If we had an opportunity so that we weren't taking uh, a father who's been here undocumented for 20 years with his family and deporting him and then somehow then punishing him for trying to return to his family, but instead create an opportunity to keep families together in the first place, I think we'd look at the issue of criminalization on the border very, very differently. And don't these recent raids in Mississippi show that that's still the path that they're pursuing? I mean, the Mississippi raids, I think, are really interesting. So my take on that, frankly, is that absolutely it's the case, I think, that when an employer is using uh, immigration status or anything else to exploit or abuse workers, that should be something that should be a priority for enforcement because those kinds of exploitative, dangerous conditions aren't good for anybody. They're not good for immigrant workers. They're not good for American workers. But my uh, understanding is that in Mississippi, none of the employers were... Uh, I think we'll were, see. I think we'll see. I mean, what 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 my... So having so so having said that, I think that's important to go after them. But having in, in those circumstances, but I, I think people were very very quick in this moment of so much political polarization to think that sort of like the woke position was to jump at the anti-Trump position and say it's so hypocritical. They're not going after the employers. They're just going after the employees. It's just like how Trump employs folks at Bedminster. I feel like I would want. I mean, what I did and what I would continue to tell folks is to take a step back. The the solution here it wouldn't be more fair. Or, or wouldn't leave us with a better world if on top of prosecuting these 680 workers, you also then went and prosecuted the employers and then the thousand plus people who still have jobs in those facilities are all fired also because they've lost their job. Like, none of that leads to a better world at the end of the day. What we need to figure out is that there are 7 million people working in the workforce who are undocumented. Many of them, probably most of them, are in totally voluntary work relationships with employers. And it wouldn't be a good thing overall for those employers to just panic suddenly and fire 7 million people who are playing a really important role in our society. There should be an opportunity for those workers and for those employers to do what they're doing right now, but through the law rather than around the law. Because that's the way that you design a system that actually requires everyone to play by the rules. The very complex issue of immigration, so many factors, uh, on so many different levels. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll uh, resume our conversation with Tom Javits from the Center for American Progress. We'll be back talking immigration in just a minute. But first, to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, great men and women in the classrooms every day, making a difference in the lives of our children teaching all the facts they need to grow up and be outstanding citizens. We salute them 
and President Randy Weingarten for their great work. Thank them for their support of the podcast. Find out a lot more about uh, what the teachers across the country are up to by going to their website at AFT.org. AFT.org. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Tom, back with you on the on the legal immigration front. Um, Ken Cuccinelli at the White House announcing this week. New rules. Um, my understanding, uh, as a not an expert in this area, which would make it more difficult for um, people who have come here legally to get a green card if in any way they, um, along the way, require a little help, any kind of public assistance at all. Is this part of the move toward merit-based immigration? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, even, it's even more expansive than what you described. It's not only just people who um, may have, along the path to getting a green card, have required assistance and used assistance, but it's anyone who they... Uh, in their infinite wisdom, believe uh, are likely to require assistance. So you don't need to have done anything per se. Uh, they just need to have looked at the totality of the circumstances and decided that based on that, they think that it's likely that you're going to need some sort of assistance. So welcome to point. your tired and your poor as long as you're not poor. I mean, that's, that is I mean, literally what Ken Cuccinelli said on NPR when he decided to rewrite uh, the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Um, yeah, and, and, and I do think that 
you know, this really is like the centerpiece of the anti-immigrant um, policymaking agenda that that they've really wanted to achieve in this administration. There, there are other things that are going to happen too. There are things they're putting in place along the southwest border uh, and with these agreements with Guatemala that's now falling apart, with what's happening in Mexico where tens of thousands of asylum seekers, uh, including Mexican asylum seekers, are illegally being uh, forced to stay in extremely dangerous conditions there rather than uh, availing themselves of what our laws allow them to uh, get, like a fair fair adjudication for an asylum claim. But this this public this public charge rule that they've now created really is um, a, a a massive rewrite of more than a hundred years of U.S. law uh, that is going to, if it is allowed to take force, begin to really, really, really reshape what this country looks like in five, fifteen, twenty-five years. I mean, doesn't it really turn on its head the whole history of immigration in this country? I mean, could Donald Trump's Ancestors have been allowed into this country if they, first of all, had to have enough means that they could support themselves without any assistance at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it is basically saying that, you know, we continue to support the American dream. You just got to first have achieved your dream elsewhere before you come to America. Um, and, you know, I, I think I think the, the how expansive this really is. Uh, we've gotten a little taste of it. Um, while the administration did this through rulemaking, they actually adopted a similar test uh, for State Department uh, consular processes uh, in a sub-regulatory fashion about a year or so ago. And we've just started to see now the impact, uh, and we're seeing a dramatic drop in visa issuance to Mexican nationals, for instance, uh, being able to come through consular processes. So we're, we're already seeing this impact for new folks trying to come to the U.S., and this is now going to result in additional chilling effect on people who are here being able to access benefits, or if they do access benefits, being denied uh, the opportunity for permanent residence. Who's driving this at the White House? I mean, I think, you know, inside the White House, I think Stephen Miller is without a question um, the, the driving force for this whole thing. Uh, but Stephen Miller has, has long had a relationship with a lot of folks on the outside, uh, including Jeff Sessions, you know, Chuck Grassley on the Senate side, as well as a lot of the anti-immigrant nativist uh, uh, groups uh, FAIR and Numbers USA, the Center for Immigration Studies, these groups that are all part of what's called the Tantan Network uh, because of this single ophthalmologist eugenicist uh, out of Michigan who basically uh, thought up the idea of trying to tackle uh, immigration policy by uh, uh, through immigration restrictionism and then, and then seeded uh, all these different organizations to sort of work together in this network to John try and put Tantan? this idea out there. Yeah, John Tantan. John Tantan. Uh, Trump himself driving it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, it, it couldn't happen without Trump. Let me say that it, it couldn't happen without Trump. Trump, Trump, and politically, he certainly sees this yeah. is his baby. Yeah. For, so, from my perspective, when I say that chaos is the point, um, I absolutely think that he sees chaos. Uh, particularly chaos and cruelty as creating political opportunities for him so he can go and stir up the rallies and get his base going. Uh, but I think it is Stephen Miller who sees chaos as an opportunity for policy de development. No question, I think, this stuff resonates fully with Donald Trump, um, but I don't think he has the 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 expertise or, or attention span or mental acuity to drive policy in the way that it's being driven. He just, he just recognizes that... Um... His base loves it, and he gets it's gr their great applause lines. Or whatever, I think and I think he is a he is a, a useful idiot to more than one puppet master, and I think Stephen Miller is just one of many. You here at the Center for American Progress 
don't just uh, look at this issue and uh, and scratch your head about it. You look for solutions. Let me ask you about what some of the solutions are. Um, is the Center for American Progress proposing uh, open borders? No. Yeah. So um, you know, uh, we are not. In we fact, are not, is anybody? Is my question. You know, I'm I'm sh- I mean, I'm sure there are folks out. I mean, there's a question. I'm sure there are folks out there who are always for you know an open borders approach or for something that's that's very absolutist like that. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think the reality is that America is a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. And our current and future prosperity depend upon immigrants, right? We know for a fact from the National Academy of Sciences that all of the growth in the working age population uh, during this current decade are as a result of immigrants and their children. And that in the next decade, but for immigrants and their children, we're going to lose like seven or eight million uh, uh, you know, people from the working age population. Immigrants are not only going to be paying into the system to support uh, aging Americans as they leave the workforce, they're also going to be providing them with critical nursing care and home health aid care, and they're going to be their doctors in rural communities. So, you know, our future and our shared prosperity depend upon immigrants. That's just a fact. And so we can either do that through the law or around the law. That's also a fact. And so from my perspective, if we are going to be a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants, and if we are going to maintain the rule of law or restore the rule of law, we have to build an immigration system that's fair, that's humane, and that's workable, that, that actually works as designed rather than in the breach. Um, and I think for too long we've been, you know, because of political paralysis, we've been satisfied with having an immigration system that, that works, it's a, it's a workable immigration system, but it works outside the law. It's an extra legal immigration system that effectively works. And that's that's not that's not sustainable for a country. And you've detailed such a system in a recent report here at the center. Yeah, so we, we released a paper uh, last month called Restoring the Rule of Law Through a Fair, Humane, and Workable Immigration System that essentially makes that case and then lays out some of the tenets of what a functioning, uh, effective immigration system could look like that, that you know could actually restore the rule of law in our system. Where do people find that report? So you can find our report on AmericanProgress.org, our website. AmericanProgress.org. Whatever happened to the old-fashioned idea of comprehensive immigration reform? Yeah, so it's interesting, actually. I mean, the, we used to talk about that. We Everybody did talk about it, right? The, I mean, so, you know, the policies, that's one of the crazy things with our debate, and this is why we did this paper, to be honest. The policies underlying what has historically been called comprehensive immigration reform remain popular. The overwhelming majority of the American public, more than 80% of Americans when polled, want undocumented immigrants to have an opportunity to earn a path to citizenship. People understand that you should have asylum and refugee programs. There's actually is good popular support for, for asylum. Um, I think people and understand. border security, people understand. People understand border security, but, but, they also, but I think they also understand that, you know, and, and I think viscerally people would understand the idea that if you if you want to maintain a system of, of laws, those laws have to make some sense. They can't just be, you know, arbitrary caps that aren't actually well tailored to our society that were written up in 1990. I mean, someone should put together a list of things of what the world looked like in 1990 when we last revised our immigration laws and see whether or not you know, an immigration system put together in that world still makes sense for the world that we live in today. Um, so people understand the policy framework of, of what has historically been called comprehensive immigration reform and the, the, the concept's popular, but it is, we don't have a good package for it. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't have a way of articulating why it's the right solution. They're all the right policy pieces, but people need to understand 
the framework in which it exists. And so for me, when I, you know, I, I, I spent, I spent, so taking one step back, I spent years sitting for the House Judiciary Committee, listening to the debate in committee hearing after committee hearing, committee markup after committee markup. And I heard all these people on the Republican side of the aisle who were these restrictionists, I mean, real restrictionist leaders, Lamar Smith, Bob Goodlatte, uh, Trey Gowdy, Steve King, talk on and on and on about America as a nation of laws. If we don't have a border, we don't have a country. If we don't have a country, we don't have laws. If we don't restore the rule of law. And I never felt like we adequately stood up and called them out on it and said, the system that you are perpetuating by refusing to build a workable immigrant is a system that exists on the degradation of the rule of laws. It, it feeds off of the disrespect of laws. The, the reason we have 11 million people here who are undocumented and can't find an opportunity to get a path to legal status is because we've built a system that we rely upon not being followed. None of that respects the rule of law. And so to me, I think it's important for us to regain that rhetorical ground because I think it's strategically right, but I think it's also just correct that if we build an immigration system through our laws that allows people to come in a fair, humane, and workable way so they can actually go through the process rather than around it, it's gonna do a world of good for our, our ability as a country to see a system that we believe in and that we believe should be enforced and that it should be enforced in a fair and just manner. And you can find out more about uh, uh, the work of Tom and the Center for American Progress on the immigration issue and a path forward at uh, AmericanProgress.org. AmericanProgress.org and at Tom Javits. You got it. Tom, thanks so much for all your good work. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's podcast on immigration. Uh, many thanks to all of you for joining us. Remember, you can find the Bill Press Pod on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and in other words, wherever you go for your favorite podcast. We're there. And while you're there, we ask you a great big favor. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. Tell your friends to subscribe. And while you're there, please give us a five-star rating. That's the best way to help us grow, grow, and grow the podcast every week. Again, thanks for listening. Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>